Okay, open up your Bibles to 2 Peter 2, and then we're going to look at the second part of verse 3 all the way to verse 10. And while you look up your passage in your Bibles, uh, I did want to just say something really quick. I normally don't do this. Uh, it's pretty rare when I make a clarification. But last Sunday, I said something that I knew in my head what I was saying. I was quoting a book, but then my wife pointed out that it might have come out differently than what you thought. So I just wanted to make it really clear. But last week, we were talking about cultural Marxism, right? And I made this quote about being partners and collaborators with these people when we talk to them. And when I read that quote, I knew what the quote meant. It meant partners and conversation. <laughs> but it didn't come out that way. It just said partners. So I just wanted to clarify, I wasn't saying let's be partners and collaborators with them in their movements. Amen? That's not what I'm saying. That is not of God. Okay, that, that is against Christ. That is not from God. And so I, I wouldn't say that. I just wanted to make it clear. We're talking about being partners in conversation. So just opening up dialogue with them. So just wanted to make that very clear. Okay, with that, let's look at 2 Peter 2, 3 through 10. Amen. 2 Peter 2, 3 through 10. Okay, this is God's word. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented his righteous soul in his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, you are holy, and we worship you, and we come before you, Lord. And I pray and ask, oh God, that you would open up to us now your word, that you would make it plain to us. That, Father God, anything that comes out of my mouth that is not from you, that you would just delete it. And I pray that it would just be your truth that comes into our hearts. And I pray that you would enable us, give us faith to receive your word. Thank you so much for everyone here. Thank you for everyone online. I pray that you would bless this gathering. Father, speak to us, minister to us. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, praise the Lord. Well, after spending the last four weeks on false teachings and false teachers today in the church, I am glad to finally be able to move forward in the book of 2 Peter and look at verses 4 through 10. And verses 4 through 10 really is a continuation of what Peter said in the first three verses, which we looked at over a month ago. But it's really just picking up right after verse 3. So what I want to do before anything else is just kind of give a brief flow of this entire section of 2 Peter chapter 2. But in the first three verses, Peter said, false teachers have come and will come into the church. He made that so clear. They will come. And these false teachers will live immoral, wicked lives, and they're going to spread immoral, wicked teachings to God's people. And this, by the way, has been true in every generation since Peter wrote those words, it's been increasing over time, especially in our time, and you already know that. We've been talking about that for the last month or so. But this is what Peter made very clear. And so because of the wickedness of these false teachers and the wickedness of their false teachings, what will come? God's judgment. So God's judgment will surely come upon them. And this is the very last part of verse 3. We just read it. But it is guaranteed from long ago that judgment has been reserved. It is not idle. It is not asleep. It will come. And then for the next several verses, verses 4 through 10, Peter gives proof that this indeed is true. That God's judgment is not asleep. 
has already been reserved since ancient times for these people who will not repent. But God's judgment will come upon the wicked. Okay, this is guaranteed. And so this is Peter's entire argument in verses 4 through 10. And so now you see how it directly connects to verse 3. He made that statement. God's judgment will come. Now here's the proof of it. So this is guaranteed. This happened. God's judgment came upon the angels that sinned before the flood. This happened with the entire generation that was drowned in the flood during the time of Noah. And then this happened with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So these are the three examples that Peter gives. And yet, at the very same time, in the very midst of this judgment of God that came, God has always shown grace. So isn't that amazing? And we're going to look at that more today. But in the very midst of judgment, inescapable judgment that will come, that has come, God always has grace. And so he looks upon the world, and then he sees all those who have trust in him, and then he rescues them. He shows them grace. He delivers them from the wickedness all around. So all of that is the flow of Peter's argument in verses 1 through 10. This is the entire section that we're looking at today. And I believe Peter's heart in writing all of this is very pastoral. Okay, this is coming from a pastor's heart. Because if you remember, who was Peter writing this letter to? Do you guys remember? It wasn't to the false teachers. He wasn't directing it to them. But in particular, he was writing it to who? If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, it's not going to be on the screen, but if you turn there, Peter said, to those who have obtained the faith of equal standing with ours, the apostles. Everybody who has a faith just like mine, Peter's saying, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, he was writing to believers. So this whole letter is writing, is, was written to believers in the midst of all of this false teaching going on. And so Peter wrote this with a pastor's heart. And he wanted to warn them about these false teachers and false teachings. But he was doing more than that. Peter wanted these true believers to be certain. He didn't want them to be shaken. Because when he got the news about all these believers in these churches, he heard one thing. Oh, there's a lot of confusion. All these believers, they're being shaken in their faith. All these false teachers have come into the church. They're saying all these things. They're being shaken in their faith. So many of these believers were feeling uncertain about their faith. They didn't know what was going on. They saw this growing wickedness and immorality all around them. And they probably thought, what can we do? Okay, how many Christians are thinking that nowadays? Okay, what, what can I do? I mean, all this stuff out there, all this stuff seeping into the church, I mean, it's crazy. What can we do? And in addition to that, they might have been thinking, were these teachers from God? Were they not from God? Okay, how many of us today, as you turn on you know, YouTube or the television, you hear things on TV, you're like, is that from God? Is that really a message that I should receive? And if they're not from God, then why hasn't God judged them yet? Why are they growing in popularity? Why are they getting more and more people around them? Where's God's judgment? So there was a lot of uncertainty today and also back in Peter's day. And into that uncertainty, Peter gave two rock-solid certainties to guide them. And so this is what we saw in our passage. There are two rock-solid certainties to guide them. The way I see it is they're kind of like bright lights that air traffic controllers wave. If you've ever been on an airplane, you know that when a plane lands, there's air traffic controllers with these two bright lights to guide the plane on the runway. It's kind of like that. Or if you've ever driven up a high mountain pass, it's like the two guardrails that keep cars from driving off the cliff. But, but Peter is giving these two certainties to guide believers in the midst of growing deception and wickedness. So what are these two certainties? Well, first, it was the certainty of God's judgment upon the wicked, including wicked false teachers. So God's certain judgment upon the wicked. And then the second one was God's certain grace to those who trust in him in the midst of that wickedness. So the certainty of God's judgment and the certainty of God's grace and deliverance. And in the same way that Peter's warning about false teachers and teachings was immediately relevant to us, right? We saw that for the last like five weeks. 
His warnings were immediately relevant. Well, I believe these true certainties are also immediately relevant to us. When Peter was talking about these two certainties, they should be immediately, oh yeah, I need that. These are relevant. Because let me ask, what Christian today has not thought about the growing immorality in our society? And if you haven't been, then where, where are you? <laughs> what have you been looking at? But what Christian today looks around and goes, oh yeah, whatever. But every Christian, every true Christian is concerned and, and maybe even anxious about the immorality all around. What Christian hasn't thought about the growing opposition to their Christian faith? Whether at work or at school, the people that they know, all this opposition that's growing. What Christian hasn't felt stress over the countless teachers everywhere saying all kinds of things? That might be true, maybe they're not true, but what Christian hasn't grappled with that? Yeah, what do I really believe about social justice? Okay, should I, you know, what do I believe about gay weddings? Should I go to that? What Christian hasn't thought about these things? And so this was the situation with the believers in Peter's time, but they were grappling with all these things, and into that whirlwind of confusion and uncertainty, Peter says, hey, don't forget, believers, these are two rock-solid things you must know. These are certainties you must have. Keep them in front of you. You must always keep these things right in front of you if you're going to stay on the right path, if you're not going to fall off a cliff, if you're going to continue with God. Again, the certainty of God's judgment upon the wicked. Okay, don't forget that. And then number two, the certainty of God's grace for those who trust in him. Even in the midst of all this wickedness, if you have trust in God, Peter is saying there's going to be a rescue. Right? God will be with you. He will show you grace. So don't forget that. So today what I want to look at is I want to look at these two certainties, the certainty of God's judgment, the certainty of God's grace, and then finally I want to touch on Peter's encouragement to us at the very end, okay, based on these certainties. Peter's trying to encourage us. So the first thing is the certainty of God's judgment. Okay, this is a guarantee. God will judge the wicked. Now this is a terrible reality that Peter wants both believers and unbelievers to be certain about. It's not just for the church, but even non-believers. He wants everyone to know this. Why? Because everyone is not certain about it. Okay, nobody, whether you're in the church or out the church, outside the church, we're not certain. Where is God's judgment on sin? See, non-believers wonder that too. Why? Because they hear believers say all the time, God's going to judge sin. God's going to judge sin. But then non-believers look around and they go, but life is going on like it always has. Like, what do you mean? The sun rises every morning. The years pass by. I'm just living my life, doing whatever I want. There's no judgment. Where's God's judgment? What are you talking about? Christian, what are you guys talking about? So non-believers have that question. But then believers also have that question. Why? Because they look at non-believers living their lives. They're rebelling against God, doing whatever they want. And they're prospering. They're doing well. They have businesses, they're doing well, their families, their friendships, their mental health, all of it seems to be going very well. They're pursuing their goals and reaching them, they're buying homes, they're vacationing, they're retiring early, they're starting YouTube channels, getting tens of thousands of subscribers, I mean, everything's going well. In fact, their lives seem better than many believers' lives. So where's God's judgment? On sin. So I think a lot of Christians wonder that as well. Yeah, I know, the pastor talks a lot about that. I know, it's in the Bible. But where? So whether you're a believer or a non-believer, whether you're righteous or unrighteous, whether you have faith in God or no faith in God, I think everyone is wondering the same thing. Where is God's judgment on sin? And so this was Peter as well. He was addressing a bunch of people, whether in the church or outside the church, who were wondering, where is God's judgment on sin? And here's Peter's answer, brothers and sisters. It was an emphatic, is coming guaranteed is coming. And as proof of that, he gave three examples from biblical history. They're all from the book of Genesis. But he gave three examples as proof of that. The first example was the angels who sinned before the flood. So look at verse four. The angels who sinned before the flood. Peter said in verse four, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, 
and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now just a quick note before we move on, but you're gonna see the word if at the beginning of each of these examples. It's kind of weird, you know, starting a sentence with if. But each of these examples start with the word if. And the reason why is because verses four through eight, where Peter gives these three examples of God's judgment, it's like one big conditional sentence, all these verses, one big conditional sentence. A conditional sentence, to remind you, is an if-then sentence, right? If this happened, then this will happen. That's a conditional sentence. So in verses four through eight, Peter was saying, if God's judgment X, and if God's judgment Y, and if God's judgment Z all happened in the past, then, verse nine, God knows how to punish the unrighteous for their sin. It will happen, guaranteed. God knows how to punish the unrighteous. And at the same time, God also knows how to rescue the godly from their wickedness. And this will also happen guaranteed. Why? Because in those stories, Noah and Lot were rescued, and we'll look at that. But this is just one long conditional sentence with an if-then structure. So that's why I'm starting with if. So now, going back to the fallen angels, this was Peter's first example of the certainty of God's judgment. Again, verse four. If, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, the first ancient, the first century readers would have immediately known what this is talking about because Jude also mentioned the same thing in his book, Jude chapter one, verse six. By the way, Jude and Second Peter, they're kind of like sister books. They're very similar. Maybe Jude wrote it based on Second Peter, or maybe Peter wrote it based on Jude. I don't know. But they're very similar. But Jude talked about it, and pretty much everyone already knew back then, and everyone who studies scripture today, they all know that Peter and Jude are talking about the same event. They're talking about Genesis 6, 1 through 4. So if you look at Genesis 6, 1 through 4, just briefly, weird passage, okay, weird little story tucked away in Genesis. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God. Now, we can't get into this in depth, but there's a lot of controversy over that title, that, that phrase, the sons of God. But some people used to think this was talking about the godly line of Seth, the descendants of Seth. But more and more, Bible scholars, Seth, by the way, was one of the children of Adam and Eve, the godly line of Seth. But more and more, the Bible scholars who have studied this, they reject this view because it doesn't make sense in the narrative. But these sons of God are more likely angelic beings, just like Peter said, these fallen angels who sinned. But these sons of God are like these angelic beings created by God, and yet they are not human beings. So these fallen angels, these angels saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he has flesh, his days shall be 120 years and the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, meaning after the flood, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man. So these angels had relations with human women and they bore children to them these were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. You know, I used to read this story as like a bizarre little story tucked away, totally unconnected to the rest of Genesis. It made no sense to me when I used to read it. And yet, Bible scholars are beginning to highlight the importance of this event, which we're not gonna get into today. But this is such an important story because the sin of the fallen angels was the corruption of humankind that led to the great flood. So why did the great flood happen? It's because of this event that took place. Somehow, these fallen angels came, had relations with human women, and angels are able to do that. They're, they're able to have bodies like us. They had relations with human women, and that corruption caused great wickedness upon the earth, and then God flooded the earth. So this is the reason, or one of the reasons why the great flood happened, the main reason, and then that corruption partially survived the flood and it continued all throughout Old Testament history. It just kept going, this corruption. 
So this sin between the fallen angels that the fallen angels brought into the human race, this is what Joshua dealt with when he conquered Canaan. He was dealing with this corruption with the giants in the land. David also dealt with it in his many battles with the Philistines when he fought Goliath. He was one of these Nephilim, a lot of people believe. But this corruption continued. And this corruption went right up to the time of Jesus. And in fact, Jesus dealt with this once and for all when he came and died on the cross. So this is how big this is. This is not some weird little story tucked away in Genesis. Skip, let's move on to the real story. No, this is at the front and center of everything that's going on in the rest of the Old Testament and why Jesus ultimately had to come. There was great corruption that entered the human race, a corruption that many people believe is still here today. Yes, Jesus dealt with it, but only for those who come to faith in Christ. For everyone else, this corruption is still very much here. So this sin of the fallen angels when they committed sexual immorality with human women was no small thing. This was no small sin, but it brought massive corruption into the human race. So God brought swift judgment upon those angels. It's interesting, not upon the women, maybe they had no say in this, but upon those angels, God brought swift judgment. It came quickly and decisively. He cast them into hell. So this is where they are now, in gloomy dungeons, bound in chains. And they're going to be there until the day of judgment when they are pulled out from that place simply to receive the final sentence and be cast into the lake of fire. So imagine being one of these angels. That's the only thing waiting for you in your future. You're imprisoned in hell until the final day of judgment when you get to get your sentence and be cast into the lake of fire. And that is God's judgment on these angels that brought such corruption upon the world. So this was the first example. I know, very weird, right? But this is what Peter talked about. God's judgment came swiftly, decisively. It was guaranteed and it'll come again if we sin likewise. Here's another example. The next example is the flood in verse five. Look at verse five. Peter said, if God did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So here's the other judgment that God brought. And of course, this was the flood that Noah preached was coming. It's the flood that only Noah and his family survived through. But you see it in Genesis 6, 5 through 6. So look at Genesis 6. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And you know, that last part in verse 6 is so important in understanding God's wrath and judgment on sin. Because look at it again. It says, God's worldwide judgment upon sin through this flood, it came because of what? A grieving heart. It says it grieved him to his heart, all of this wickedness. That's why he brought the flood. I like what one Old Testament scholar, Alan Ross, said. But he said God's grief over sin forms an important part of the theology of divine judgment. So whenever you think about God's wrath and judgment on sin, you've got to think about God's grieving heart. That's what he's saying. It's got to be a part of that theology of God's judgment. In other words, God's judgment and wrath is partly defined by God's grief in his heart. It's not like God's just sitting up there on his throne just throwing lightning bolts down. That's a different God. That's Zeus. <laughs> He's not real. But this God, the true God of the Bible, he has grief in his heart. He grieves as he pours out wrath. And as one author said, grief is a love word. Amen? Who grieves? Only people who have love. If you have love for something, you grieve. Even if it's something inanimate. <laughs> I remember one of my kids, they had this favorite blanket. They wore it out. I mean, it was just basically uh, mozzarella cheese after a while. It just had holes everywhere. And then finally, when my uh, wife decided to throw it away, I mean, there was such grief, right? Why? Because that kid, I won't name it, I won't name who. Actually, all three of them have blankets. <laughs> but that child loved that blanket literally to shreds. Grief is a love word. So you only grieve when something you love has been lost. Something you love has been corrupted. Something you love has to be cast away. It's a love word. And because God grieves when he judges people for their sin, that means his love is a part of his wrath. You can't separate those things. His love is a part of his wrath. 
What I mean is he pours out his wrath because of his love for what is pure and righteous. See, it's because he loves what is holy and pure and righteous and good. Because he loves that so much, his wrath comes out. He pours out his wrath because his love for those who are hurt by sin and wickedness. It's because he loves those that he has created and they're being hurt by sin. That's why his wrath is poured out. See, God's love is a part of his wrath. See, these things are intertwined. This is why theologian John Frame said God's love and his wrath are not at odds with one another. Okay? They're not competing against each other. They're not opposite from one another. He said, if we think they are, we have not understood God's love. You have an incomplete view of God's love. When you think of God as love, and by the way, that is a unique phrase only found in the Bible. No other religious text has ever said God is love. That is a unique contribution from the Bible. And for everyone who has accepted that, then you should accept what the Bible says elsewhere, just as important, God is also holy and he pours out judgment. If you're ready to accept God is love, unique statement from the Bible alone, then you should accept this other unique statement from the Bible. God is holy. And those things go together. Why? Because love and his judgment, his wrath are intertwined. And so because of God's love for righteousness and all that is good, and because of his love for Noah and his family, God judged the world with this great flood. This is why he poured out his wrath upon the entire world. And for those of us, or maybe no one here, but for those who see the flood as just a children's story and a myth, I want to point out, it's very interesting, how cultures all around the world, isolated from one another, I know I point that out a lot, But it's very fascinating how many things are similar, even though cultures all around the world are isolated. But cultures all around the world, isolated from one another, all have cataclysmic flood stories, often global in scale. It's very fascinating. But it doesn't matter what continent you are on, what people group you encounter, majority of them, if not maybe almost all of them, have cataclysmic flood stories. So, for example, in Africa, you find flood stories all over the continent. Like, for example, the Yoruba people and many other tribal peoples. There are flood stories in North America among the Native American tribes like the Hopi and the Inuit and many others. There are flood stories in South America with the Mayans, the Incans, the Aztecs, and others. There are flood stories in the Far East and Southeast Asia in places like China, Japan, Korea, Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, India, and others. Did you know that? All those countries, all those cultures have cataclysmic flood stories. There are flood stories in the Middle East in places like Egypt and Iran. There are flood stories among the tribal people of Australia and Polynesia, totally isolated. We're talking about the tribal people, not the Europeans who went there totally just isolated on their own on these islands. They have cataclysmic flood stories. And finally, of course, there are flood stories in Europe, such as among the ancient Greeks and European pagan cultures. We're not talking about the Christians who brought it there. We're talking about all these pagan cultures and the ancient Greeks living in Europe had cataclysmic flood stories. So how do you explain that? Why do you find flood stories all around the world, even among isolated people groups? Okay, why do we find that if this is just a made-up story in the Bible or if it's just a story that the Bible stole, stole from another culture that was made up? Okay, how do you explain that? Well, people have a lot of sociological, evolutionary theories trying to explain all this. But maybe the answer is as simple and as straightforward as this. There actually was a global flood that the Bible talks about. And as humanity, after the flood, began to spread out upon the entire earth, they passed on that story that impacted them so deeply. And then over time, these cultures, as they formed in isolation, it became a part of their myths and their legends. And so that's why you find cataclysmic flood stories on every continent in the world today. And Peter said, this flood in Genesis is proof that God judges sin. It's certain. This is evidence, Peter says. Because God judged the world back then, he will judge it again in the future. So that was his second example. And then here's the third example, God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. 2 Peter 2.6, it 
It says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So these ancient cities were on the Jordan River Plain near the Red Sea, the northern part of the Red Sea. And Peter makes it very clear. And he's just talking about the story in Genesis. But these cities were utterly destroyed for their wickedness, especially sexual immorality. So people just sleeping around and sleeping with whoever they want, wherever they want, doing whatever they want, marrying whoever they want. I mean, that is a serious, serious offense. These cities were destroyed because of that. I think it was Ronald Reagan. I hope it's Ronald Reagan. hope I'm not misquoting him. But, but I think he said one time, if God doesn't judge America, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. I think that was Reagan. <laughs> I mean, he kind of said it as a joke, but it's true though. God's wrath was poured out on these cities because of their sexual immorality. So Peter talked about this. Jesus also talked about this, but both of them said Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture, an example of God's end time judgment upon wickedness. So that happened, yes, that was a historical reality. That was actually an event in history, but it's a picture of what will happen again. Jesus said in Luke 17, 29, I don't think this will be up there. But Jesus said, on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, when I come back. Jesus said, it's going to be exactly the same when I return. There will be a sudden cataclysmic judgment. Fire raining down on the earth again. Except I believe this second time it will be much more global. But how can we know this is true, right? How can we know that it actually happened in the past and therefore we'll know it'll happen in the future? I mean, who's to know, right? These are just stories, right? Well, again, like the flood story in the Bible, there are traces of these events still around today and you can know these traces. There are traces of these events in surprising ways, actually. So when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah, in the last 15 years, archeologists have found an abundance And I'm not exaggerating, an overwhelming abundance of evidence for the biblical Sodom that was completely destroyed in Genesis. But there is abundant evidence of Sodom's cataclysmic destruction by a cosmic event. And for many years, archaeologists didn't know this because they assumed that Sodom was near the southern part of the Red Sea. The Red Sea kind of looks like this, this long oval shape. They thought it was near the southern part because of some assumption that one famous archaeologist made many, many years ago. It wasn't based on the Bible's description. He just kind of made some assumptions. They dug around there. They couldn't find it. They thought Sodom was under the sea. Maybe it's in the ocean, right? In the sea. But not long ago, maybe about 20, 15 years ago, an archaeologist named Stephen Collins, and I actually heard an interview, an extended interview with him, but Stephen Collins, using the Bible, said, you know what, I'm going to look for Sodom again. I don't think it's near the, the southern part of the Red Sea. So using the Bible, using the geographic pointers and markers, he actually found or discovered that, no, the more accurate location is the northeast side of the Red Sea. I think that's where the Bible's pointing. So Dr. Collins with his team went there and began digging around and then they were surprised because they found this enormous city. It was a metropolis that was dated back to the Middle Bronze Age, which is when Abraham would have been alive. That's when Abraham lived in the middle of the Bronze Age. And this city had a name. It was Tal El Hammam. Tal El Hammam. That was the name on the city when he found it. And this city, it was so evident, he said, when, he, when they started digging around, it was completely obliterated, destroyed by immense heat, a thousand times more powerful than the bomb that was dropped in Hiroshima. You know, Hiroshima, the atomic bomb that was dropped, it was a thousand times more powerful. And he saw evidence of that, him and his team. And scientists, they had a name for this. It's a cosmic airburst. A cosmic airburst. So, Tal El-Hamam, that cosmopolitan city was destroyed by cosmic airburst. And then later other scientists showed up and they began to study it. Other archaeologists showed up and then there was a lot of effort put into this and eventually they published all of this in a journal. The journal Nature Scientific Reports is a very prestigious, rigorous, peer-reviewed journal. You can Google it. I Googled it. You can find it right away. 
Just Google airburst tall El Hammam. You'll find it right away. And let me read a part of this article to you. Okay, this is the very beginning. We present, okay, all these scientists, we present evidence that around 1650 BC, about 3,600 years ago, a cosmic airburst destroyed tall El Hammam a middle Bronze Age city in the southern Jordan Valley northeast of the Dead Sea. The proposed airburst was larger than the 1908 explosion over Tunguska, Russia, where about a 50-meter-wide meteor detonated with about a 1,000 times more energy than the Hiroshima atomic bomb, end quote. Okay, that's the beginning of the article. And then the article later goes on to describe what archaeologists found in the city ruins. But they found metal, I'm sorry, melted glass, melted pottery, melted mud bricks, diamond-like carbon with immense pressure and heat. Carbon turns into diamond. Soot, melted plaster, melted platinum, iridium, nickel, gold, silver, zircon, chromite, and quartz. Some of those elements, they're not even from that region. They're only from outer space. So there was a meteor some cosmic airburst event. And they also found human bone fragments all throughout the city. And scientists estimate that the temperatures that were needed to produce this devastation is more than 2,000 degrees Celsius. That's more than 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, that's the temperature that exploded over this city. And Dr. Collins, the archaeologist who found the city, he said in an interview, no, no, no doubt at all. He said, this is the biblical city of Sodom. He said, without a doubt. And the interviewer kind of pressed him on that. He's like, no, this is Sodom. And with the exception of a few people, this has been mostly accepted by the scientific community. In fact, I did this, but if you go to Google Earth or Google Satellite and you just search Sodom, it'll point you straight to Tal El Hammam. So even Google agrees. Yeah, that's Sodom. So try it later today. Go to Google Maps, Satellite, go Sodom. You're going to see Tal El Hammam. So Tal El Hammam is the ancient city of Sodom. And it is beyond dispute what happened to that city. A cataclysmic cosmic airburst event destroyed it, leveled it completely. And so why am I telling you all this? Well, the reason is because Peter presented Sodom and Gomorrah as proof of God's judgment upon sin. He said, God many, many years ago, thousands of years ago, destroyed this city. It was a God event. It wasn't an army. It wasn't some human you know, army that showed up. No, this was a cosmic God event leveled the city. Why? Because it was judgment upon their sin. And now 2,000 years later, scientists have found that city, Sodom, exactly the way the Bible described it to be, utterly destroyed by intense heat. But for those who reject the Bible, nothing is evidence, everything is coincidence, so that's you know, where they are. And yet for those who know God, those who Peter was addressing, even today, this is proof that God has and will judge sin. It is guaranteed, he will judge sin. Again, Jesus said in Luke 17, on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus is saying, if that happened back then, it's gonna happen again, trust me. This is gonna happen again because of the wickedness upon the earth. So brothers and sisters, notice how from these three examples, Peter gives, you see a complete picture of God's judgment. I like this one commentary, but it said from these three examples, you see the height of God's judgment, you see the breadth of God's judgment, and the depth of God's judgment, and that's so true. But Peter intentionally gave these different examples to show you the fullness of God's judgment. But you see the height of God's judgment with the fallen angels. In other words, there is no creature that is so high and so elevated that God will not judge their sin. If they fall into sin, God will judge them, Peter was saying. And so this is a warning to everyone today who is powerful and wealthy and well-connected and they're lifted up and they, they, and they see themselves as above the law, maybe even God's law. This is a warning to them. See, you never reach a point in your career where you have climbed so high where sin no longer matters. There's something about success that kind of does that, doesn't it? You're like, gosh, I'm just doing so well. Maybe I could just kind of get away with this or do this. 
And the clear teaching of the Bible, including Peter, is nobody gets away with anything. Nobody gets away with anything. No matter how elevated, how high, God will judge your sin. You know, I mentioned this story before, but this is exactly what happened with one minister when Andrew Jackson, before he became president, but when Andrew Jackson showed up at a church meeting, the pastor was told, going, hey, watch what you're going to say, right? Because Andrew Jackson's here, the great general. I think he's going to run for president, so be careful. And the, and the minister's like, oh, okay. And then the moment he stood up, he's like, I heard Andrew Jackson is in the room today. If he doesn't repent of his sin and receive Jesus as Lord, then you will be judged by God and go to hell or something like that. And then Jackson later said, man, I like you. (laughs) I want you on my team. I need you on my army. But no one is so elevated, right? So you see the height of God's judgment. You also see the breadth of God's judgment with the flood. In other words, there's no creature anywhere on the earth who can hide themselves from God's judgment on sin. Just because I'm way over here, I've never heard about Christ, I never saw a Bible, I'm just kind of doing my own thing way over here, God's not going to judge me if there is a God. The Bible says, no, your conscience then condemns you. And so this is a warning to all, everywhere, whether Christian or non-Christian. This is a warning to all, whether you're young or old. So for example, to young people today who say, you know, the Bible is for you old folk. It's for you people who cling to your outdated religion. And I would say to them, no, it's for you too. You're gonna answer to God for your sins. Nobody gets away with anything. This is also a warning to all the elderly people who say all that fervor over the Bible, all your singing and passion, you young people. Oh, that's for you. I grew up in the 60s, right? I'm liberated. No, with all due respect, sir, ma'am, it's for you too. It's for you too. God will judge you and you will answer to him. This is a warning to all you religious people who say, yeah, all that talk about judgment, that's for those pagans out there. It's for the Muslims in the Middle East and the Hindus and the Buddhists, way over there in other countries. I grew up in a Christian home. No, it's for you too. Be careful what you say. In fact, the Bible says judgment begins with the house of God. Just because you come to church doesn't guarantee that you're a believer under God's grace. It can be for you too. So there's the breadth of God's judgment. And then finally, there's the depth of God's judgment with Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, it doesn't matter how far you have gone away from God, how much you've rejected God, how much sin has accumulated in your life. And people are like this. They have drifted so far from God. They have accumulated so much sin. They go, ah, it's not even worth it. Whatever. Maybe there is a God. Whatever. I'm just doing my thing now. I'm I'm so like on this path. No, even for you, it does matter. Nobody gets away with anything. You will be held accountable. There is the depth of God's judgment. Doesn't matter how long you've gone on a certain path, how much sin you've committed, it doesn't all just awash. God will hold account. And so this is God's judgment. There is height. There is height. There is breadth. There is depth to it. And Peter says, if it happened back then, it will happen again. So far, this hasn't been too encouraging, I know, but I want to remind you, this is pastoral. Peter is giving a pastoral message saying, I want you to keep this before you always. It's going to guide you, right? It's going to keep you on the right path. But that's not all, and then we're going to cover this much more quickly. But Peter said, but here's a second certainty you need to have before you. It is God's grace. It is God's grace. And so now, in each of these examples, except for the one with the angels, he mentions how there is grace. So Peter says in verse 5, if God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, herald of righteousness, with seven others. Did you read that or did you hear that? God, in the midst of flooding the world, if he did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah. He preserved Noah. And it says it even more beautifully in Genesis 6, 7 through 8. But if you turn back to that passage, it says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so that's so significant. And the reason why is because Genesis is kind of broken up into different chapters. So it's one book, you already know that, 
but it's one book broken up into smaller books. So if Genesis was like a library, there would be smaller books filling up that library. And each of those smaller books are kind of marked off by these lists of generations. So there's a list of a generation, and then it kind of goes into a bunch of stories, and then there's another list of generations. It's called the Toledot. And then it goes into another section of Genesis. Well, this verse, verse 8, ends one of those books, one of those sections. And this is how it ends. God's going to destroy the entire world, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The end. And then it picks up again in the next chapter, next section. And the reason why that's so significant is because God wanted to highlight that. Again, in the midst of great judgment that he's going to pour out. Again, it happened in the past. It will happen again. God is saying, if you are a, a certain kind of person who is trusting in me, if you're looking to me, then I see you, and I will pour out grace on you. Okay, I'm going to rescue you. You're not going to be a part of this judgment. Okay, you're not going to be swept away in this wickedness. And so Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, there's certainty there. So then just briefly, how do you know if you have this grace? So how do you know that you're not going to be swept away with the wickedness all around and you're going to be delivered? How are you going to know that? Well, there are two things that I see in these stories, but two evidences of grace in your life. Okay, just briefly, we're going to have to do this quick. But first, groaning and torment over sin. Okay, that's one of the first things you see when a person gets saved is they begin to groan and they're tormented over their sin. Look at 2 Peter 7, 2, verse 7. And if God rescued righteous Lot, okay, moving on to the Sodom and Gomorrah story, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented. It was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless, lawless deeds, and he saw and heard. I'm sorry, that sentence is kind of broken up in a weird way, but, but you get the point. He was tormented in his soul because of their lawless deeds. And so that's one of the first evidences that you have God's grace upon your life. Is you not only have a different relationship with God, now you have what? A different relationship with sin. See, a lot of times we just talk about, oh yeah, I have a new relationship with God. I'm saved. But not a lot of people talk about, do you have a different relationship with sin though? And when I look at a lot of Christians Yay, I have a new relationship with God, but I don't think you have a different relationship with sin. And both have to happen. For the person who has truly received grace, you have a different relationship with sin. Brothers and sisters, I remember when I first got saved. You know, I was just kind of this, you know, know-nothing college student in uh, freshman year. And then God gloriously touched my life. I grew up in the church, but I got saved in college. And then after that, I remember, I didn't change drastically I started, you know, I stopped saying the F word and swear words. And so my mouth changed. But in other areas of my life, I didn't change very much. But you know what did change? My relationship to those things. It drastically changed. It went from like, oh, yeah, not a big deal. You know, no one's perfect to, oh, my goodness. I just remember pounding my forehead a lot against walls <laughs> in my apartment or in my dorm room or just where I'm at. I'm like, oh, Lord. Why do I keep falling into these things? My relationship with sin had changed. And so this was Lot. I mean, Lot was not perfect. Okay, there was a lot with Lot, right? There was a lot going on. Okay, bad joke. But, but there was a lot with Lot. I mean, I mean, he was going to give his daughters over to the sodomites. I mean, he picked like this terrible city. Hey, you know, the housing market looks great in Vegas. Let's move on to the strip, family. I mean, it's just weird stuff, right? He took his family there. But one thing that is clear, he was tormented. The moment he moved into that bad neighborhood, started seeing all the stuff around, he was tormented. He not only had a different relationship with God, he had a different relationship with sin. And brothers and sisters, this mark is throughout scripture. Let me just briefly mention this, Ezekiel 9, verse three and five. This is when God's judgment came upon Israel, but listen, now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house, meaning the temple of God. So God's glory was leaving because of the wickedness of Israel. It was leaving. But before he left, this is what he said. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, 
passed through the city through Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Did you hear that? God says, I'm about to leave. My judgment's gonna come. But before I do, I want you to take note of everyone who is sighing and groaning because of all the sin. You put a, put a special mark on them, on their forehead. And to the rest, without the mark, in other words, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Slay them all, kill them all. That's my judgment. But those who are groaning and sighing over sin, God said, I'm gonna preserve them. And that, by the way, is the exact opposite of the mark of the beast in Revelation 13. Okay, we really don't have time to get into that. This past week, my kids and I, we actually did an extended family devotion on the mark of the beast. I don't know how we got onto that topic, but it was really exciting, wasn't it, Joshua? <laughs> yeah, we just kept going on and on. My kids had all these questions. The mark of the beast, who's the beast? Is it like, anyway, we just went on and on. But the mark of the beast is the exact opposite of this. In other words, once the Antichrist comes one day in the future and then there is a mark, and I'm not saying it's any particular thing, we don't know what it is, but that mark, according to one Bible teacher or several, it is clear what it'll indicate. It'll be a submission to the Antichrist. It'll be ownership to the Antichrist. And ultimately, it's gonna be a trust in the Antichrist. And so why do I mention that? Well, there are people today, long before the mark actually comes, they're already doing those things. They already have a spiritual mark on them. Because they call themselves Christian, but day after day, they have put their trust in the world, they are submitted to the world system, they are looking after the world, they are owned by the world. And so let me ask, what mark is on you? God says, when I look out upon the world, my judgment is coming, as sure as Sodom, as sure as the flood, it's coming but I'm looking at everyone groaning and tormented by the sin. And too many Christians, I think they just go on living their lives. Oh, I mean, they actually bring it in, as we saw for the last several weeks. They bring that stuff in. God says everyone without this mark, judgment. So there is a groaning and torment over sin. That's the first sign that you have God's grace upon your life. Quote unquote, the mark. And then here's another indicator. You have trust in God that causes you to act. You're gonna act. As you're surrounded by all this wickedness in this world, again, should it, be, uh, it should be clear by now, right? We've looked at this. But do you now have trust in the Lord to the point of acting? So if you look at Noah, Noah trusted in God. And that led him into the biggest DIY project in the history of mankind, right? He started building this gigantic boat. It took him 100 years building a boat that was 510 feet long, 50 feet tall, covered with pitch inside and out, enough rooms to house his entire family, every kind of land animal in the world in his day, which, be, which would be far less than all the species today. But every kind of animal was to go in there. But that is not all. His trust in God moved him to preach. So he not only spent 100 years building this boat, but he preached Peter called him a preacher of righteousness. So it's hard to imagine Noah building this boat for 100 years and never telling anyone. He told people, everyone he could, judgment's coming, judgment's coming. Do you see my DIY project here? It's taking me 100 years. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. It moved him to act. Lot was the same way. Lot's trust in God moved him to act. Again, there was a lot with Lot. He wasn't perfect, but his faith led him to bring the angels in who were visiting Sodom. The angels came to get Lot. The men of the city who were filled with lust, homosexual lust, wanted to rape these men. They looked like beautiful men, these angels. But then Lot brought them in. He caused these men to stay on the outside. He also believed the angel's message when they told him to leave Sodom, and then he took his entire family. And then he also preached to his extended family. He tried to tell all his son-in-laws and his extended family, you better leave too, but they wouldn't listen. But Lot was moved to act. So what am I saying? This is the second indicator, you have God's grace. And again, I just don't see it a lot these days. A lot of people come to church, oh, I'm a Christian, but I'm just living my life. 
Okay, there's no torment in my soul. I mean, even some of this stuff, bring it in. And on top of that, I'm just whatever. I'm just going to hear a sermon. Thank you. I'm going to go to work tomorrow. But there's nothing about it that moves you to act. There's nothing. You know, should I share my faith? I don't know. Next time. There's nothing that moves anyone to act. And yet clearly in scripture, these are the indicators of grace. So again, do you have this mark on your life? Are you groaning? Are you tormented by the wickedness around us? And are you moved to act? You got to do something. You got to tell people God's judgment is coming. So this is the grace that God wants to put on all of us. And for those who have God's grace, he will deliver. He will deliver. And then finally, we're going to bring this to a close. But then Peter wraps this up by giving encouragement Pass. God brought judgment on wickedness, but in the midst of that, he showed grace and saved people. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials today. And these trials are not a parking ticket in your life. <laughs> it's not tofu, I guess, right? This is talking about all the trials that you see in the world, the wickedness all around. God knows how to rescue you from it. Isn't that a comfort? See, so Peter's pastorally trying to comfort us. For the last five weeks, we talked about neo-paganism, the occult, cultural Marxism, all the insanity out there, transgenderism. I mean, this stuff is coming into the church. And for a lot of us, maybe we're getting concerned, and yet Peter's saying, don't be worried. If God knew how to rescue Noah and Lot, he's going to rescue you. All who have the mark of his grace, he's going to rescue you. And so so it says here, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and at the same time keep the unrighteous under punishment until judgment. He can judge and he will judge all the wickedness around. So I close with this, brothers and sisters, but Peter's encouragement, we need to receive it. These are the two certainties all the way before us, always before us. But Peter wants us to keep this in front of us so that we can live a certain way. In fact, not only stay on a certain course, but to actually be transformed by it. But I was reminded as as I was writing the sermon of John Piper's famous sermon, and I remember being very gripped by it when I first heard it. But many, many years ago, I think this was like 20 years ago, he preached his sermon at a youth rally, a youth conference, 40,000 students were there. And then he started talking about seashells. Have you guys heard that? Maybe some of you guys have heard that. But he started talking, talking about seashells and how he read in a magazine recently of an old couple that recently retired. They weren't that old. They still had a few decades left to live. And now, because they had all this money, they were retired, they were spending all their time on the beaches in Florida collecting seashells. And John Piper said, seashells? Seashells, right? He's all passionate. Can you imagine on the day of judgment when they stand before a holy God with eyes like fire and you're gonna show them your seashells, right? Seashells. And around that same time, he's like, let me tell you something else, a different way to live. But he said around that time, he got report of two missionaries he knew, two women in their 80s, and one of them was single. She was single her whole life. But there were missionaries in Cameroon. One was a medical missionary, the other one was a lifetime missionary. But they were there doing missions work, and then on a fateful day, the brakes on their car gave out, and they drove over a cliff, and they instantly died two women in their 80s, missionaries. And Piper said, was that a waste? Was that a waste to live your life like that and then to go into eternity? Okay, which is better? To retire early and collect seashells for 20 years or to go off a cliff while serving the Lord and be instantly in the presence of God? And so let me just read this to you. But, but he actually made a very, very relevant point to the audience there. But he said, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. You don't. You don't have to go to certain schools. You don't have to reach certain status. You don't have to be smart or good looking or from a good family. You just have to know a few basic, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and then be gripped by them and be willing to lay your life down for them. And although he didn't mention these two things that Peter's talking about, I thought about that. Okay, you don't have to have a lot of things. You don't have to do a lot of things in life to have a completely radical, eternal, impacting life. You just have to know these two certainties. God is going to judge this world. 
And for those who trust him, he will deliver. Amen? So let's just come before the Lord right now. God is awesome. He is glorious. If you're a believer, maybe you've only known Jesus for like a year or two years. But a believer who is gripped by these two realities will do far, far more than a Christian who's been walking with God for 30 years and knows the Bible inside and out and has like degrees in theology. But they're not gripped by these realities. The baby Christian who knows nothing but these two things will do far more. I believe that. He or she will do far more. If you truly believe in these things, how can it not change your life? God, guaranteed, is gonna judge all wickedness upon the earth. Doesn't matter how high, how wide, how deep, people try to run from him, he will judge everyone. But those who have trust and faith in Jesus Christ, who have that mark of grace on them, he will save. He knows how to deliver. He knows who belongs to him. That's another way to say what Peter said. He knows who belongs to him. So let's just come before him right now as we wrap this up, but let's just ask God to make these realities our realities. Let's just pray that, and we're gonna close. Thank you, Father God.